to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, your host as always, and I'm joined tonight by Rocket Talk's first ever guest. You'll remember way back when I talked about the Lego movie with Tor.com blogger Emily Asher Perrin and one Bradley P. Bowyer. Tonight, Brad is back. He's the author of four novels, including the Lays of Anaskaya trilogy. His newest book, Twelve Kings in Sharakai, is out September 1st. He's a Writers of the Future winner and has been longlisted for the David Gemmel Morningstar Award for his debut novel, The Winds of Kalakavo. He's also the host of the excellent podcast, Speculate SF. He lives in Wisconsin with his wife and children. Welcome, Brad. Thank you very much. And this, this is my third time on the show. That's kind of weird. What, when were you on a second time? We, I was on with uh, Tina Connolly. Ah, that's uh, right. To, to talk about your uh, short fiction the, collection. The six by six thing, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. I, I guess I'm, a, I'm like over 60 episodes now, so they're all starting to sort of blur. Yeah, yeah, I know. They do blur. I hope they're not blurring together for my listeners, <laughs> but they occasionally blur together for me, so I guess that's how it goes. So how does it feel to be back for a third time? Are you excited? I'm very excited. I feel like a mainstay now. You are. I think uh, at, <laughs> at three, that makes you probably the second most uh, appearing guest. I think, Sam's, oh, I think Sam, Sam Sykes is number one. Okay. At, at how many? You know, I think he, he may only be three two actually. Now that I think about it, uh, I think uh, uh, Liz Burke and Renee have both been on. I think three times as well. Okay. So, but so three's the max. I mean, you're 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 in the. Uh, the I'm, I'm tied. I'm tied for first place. That's right. You're in the pantheon. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, congratulations on your new book. Uh, Thank you. It's about to come out here. Well, by the time this airs, probably like uh, it just came out yesterday, probably. Yeah, but, right, exactly. Yeah. By the way, the podcasts work. I feel yeah. I I feel like I know the book intimately, having <laughs> because read, read it as many times as I have. Yeah. But uh, in an effort not to exclude everyone else, give us kind of the quick uh, elevator pitch. So it's uh, it's Game of Thrones meets Arabian Nights. You know, that's kind of the the, the quick and dirty. Uh, but it focuses on a pit fighter, uh, a young woman who lost her mother uh, when she was young, and she lost her mother to the Twelve Kings of Sharkai. Um, and and wrapped up in that, she doesn't quite understand early on uh, why her mother was killed, but she was killed very cruelly and viciously. Uh, so she vows revenge, uh, but. Really, that is just the starting point. It, it grows into something much larger as she finds uh, these hidden riddles in, a, in the book uh, of poems her mother left her. Um, and that starts to expand and widen her understanding of what happened to her mother and also the, the, the riddles of her own heritage start to unlock as well as she digs into that. So epic fantasy set in Arabian Nights kind of a, kind of a realm. I think that's actually a, a really good setup. I mean, you clearly honed this for that purpose, but uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things going on there that I think are, are cool and interesting that, that set off bells for me as a, as a reader. And the first of those is this concept of, you know, in epic fantasy, a lot we see the tropes of, and we always joke about it, the farm boy trope. Cheda, your protagonist of the pit fighter, she, uh, she isn't a farm boy by any means. She's this sort of very world aware woman. But the way you use the riddles, she's peeling back the world that really nobody knows. That's a secret. Yeah, as, as you were saying that about the, the farm boy, I, I agree, you know, that that's um, a, a very uh, cool way to, to get into the tale, just seeing it through the eyes of that character, whoever it is. Um, and, and But I was also thinking that the exact same thing, like I, I really did enjoy kind of having a lot of unknowns for her. Um, you know, I did have to set things up kind of carefully um, and... and set of rationale, but in the end, 
Uh, she's in the dark about a lot of things, including who her mother was, because she died when she was, um, uh, her mother died when Cheda was fairly young, uh, roughly eight years old. And so she wasn't told a lot of things, or even if she was told things, she may not have remembered all of it, you know, correctly. And so as she grows older, um, and other people are hiding things from her as well, just to protect her, uh, including this uh, foster father that she ends up with, Darzada. Um, and so she is very interested in finding out more, uh, but the world itself and the people protecting her aren't really interested in that. So, so yeah, I mean, she, she starts to peel that back, um, after a, a random encounter, uh, in the city. Um, and, and yeah, and then she finds that the riddles, A, exist, um, and then she finds additional ones and she starts to understand what they're about and how they, how they relate to her mother. I have to ask you sort of a, a, a craft or technical question here. The riddles, which, you know, they're sort of prophetic, sort of not prophetic. It just sort of depends on your, how you want to interpret them. But they are clearly, they are poetic. I, I got to ask you, writing that kind of stuff has to be hard. Like, how much time did you spend crafting these riddles? Uh, quite a bit. Um, so when I, when I knew that that was going to be an element in the story, I, I actually stopped what I was doing. And at, at the time I was brainstorming, I, I don't think I'd written very much at all by then. Um, and I talked to a few friends that had done some poetry and I, I wrote the entire thing. So I, I have all of the verses written down at this point, uh, in, including the reader starts to understand that there are some riddles related to the Kings and how they gained power. Um, but there's some outside of that as well. And it relates to the, the night that they did that, in fact. Um, and the, the sort of the background is that they've been ruling, uh, they're semi immortal. Um, and on, on a night 400 years in the past, uh, the city was beset by these desert tribes and they made a dark bargain with the gods of the desert. Um, and when that happened, these, these, uh, I won't go into, into a lot of it just to not, uh, give too many spoilers, but these poems were, were read and they kind of relate to how they gained power. Um, and so anyway, I wanted all of that down because it's, it's part and parcel of the entire story. The entire series is going to be related to these riddles. And so I wanted all of that done, um, ahead of time. So I, yeah, I have all that written down and, and kind of worked out and it took me, I don't know, you know, on and off, um, a good month to kind of perfect them. How many words would you say is all that? Yeah, it's kind of one epic poem. So it's, um, I don't know, um, a couple thousand words, just the poem itself. Yeah, so this is fascinating to me because it is, what I've seen of them, it has that very like, epic poem feel uh, yeah. that, you know, it's you see this in other fantasies too, occasionally, you know, uh, like the Wheel of Time has sort of its prophecies that, that are written. And I always wonder how much the author actually has written of those things. And I often think very little because, you know, it's... Uh, it uh, allows you the flexibility to sort of make up new stuff as you go along. But I like the idea that you've written it down beforehand and, and sort of established it as your own historical record. Yeah, you know what? I based it off of kind of the, my, my, the very kernel of it was um, the, the poem from J.R.R. Tolkien about uh, Aragorn, the, the bit that goes, not all who wander, not all that is gold, um, not all that glitters is gold. Not all who wander are lost. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact poem, but the, Tolkien, I liked a lot of his, and, and a couple of those really struck me. Uh, so I kind of I read that over before I started, just to kind of absorb the the cadence and such. And and so there's there's some echoes of Tolkien in there. 
Hey, man, uh, we all stand on the we stand on the shoulders of giants. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's talk about sort of epic fantasy for a second, because, and I'm going to sort of betray some knowledge of this book that's different than what has been published. And when you first uh, let me read some of this book, and I think even when your editor bought the book, there was only one point of view. Yep. It was just Jada. Yeah. And when you and I were talking, I think you had initially thought like you almost, you wanted to write an epic fantasy from one point of view. What do you think about the epic fantasy as a single point of view epic fantasy? What are the challenges in that? And uh, why did you ultimately make the decision to go to a multi-POV narrative? Yeah, so it's, it's, well, so that was the goal for sure. I I was trying to, to write an epic from a, from a single point of view. And I had only um, a prologue at that point. I didn't even have the flashbacks at that point. And, and so that was partially because I had written The Lays of Sky and each one of those was like 180 to 200 and, you know, 25 roughly. The books varied in size slightly, but they were all big. And, and, and that was because they had three POVs or four in the case of the last book, you know, told a lot of angles of that story. And, and I'm like, well, you know, I love epic fantasy, but I'd also like to, to write a, you know, a tighter, shorter book. Uh, maybe get them out faster, you know, that kind of thing. And also make it more, more intimate, you know, have the reader really care about, you know, the, the single character really relates to them. So that, that was the initial goal. Um, and as I dug into it, um, and I, you know, and I, the first past as you read was that. Um, and then as you mentioned, um, and a couple of people said something similar. The reader wasn't really able to sit down in the, in the story a lot, um, using some of your words. Uh, because, because it was that I wasn't able to tell the other points of view. And so I was going through some, some literary gymnastics, uh, these weird yoga poses to try to show the other parts of the story. And it felt unnatural after a while. And so I I finally gave in and and decided to write, you know, the other points of view. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there are, are books that can be quite broad um but it might take a better writer than me to pull it off i just i felt like i just needed to have those other points of view to to tell the full tale to get the full epic landscape which i really like um but what i what i've been really pleased about so far is that people seem to they call it epic and intimate at the same time and i think that's because i started with cheta um and really focused on her and the other characters that come in like emery her best friend and Ramad, a lord from uh, a neighboring kingdom, uh, who she becomes somewhat romantically involved with. And then the kings, there's one point of view from the kings too. They are all clearly secondary to Cheda uh, in the story. And so I, I, I think it's, um, I'm glad that it's coming off like that. So there's, there's some still personal connection uh, while telling a larger tale. Yeah, I think you struck that balance really well. Uh, you know, personally, I have a, a view that and I, I get kind of hard and fast on certain rules. I hate how broad our genres are sometimes. I'm just sort of like, it, yeah. it doesn't have to be epic fantasy, right? Like, uh, so like Mark Lawrence's books, for example, which are this intimate first person narrative. A lot of people call them epic fantasy, but to me, they're really not. They're actually quite the opposite of, it's, they're so personal, it's hard to be epic. Yeah. And it's, well, it's, and it's, but it's hard to call them sword and sorcery or heroic fantasy either. I don't know what to, I don't know where to put them right. besides epic fantasy, you know, but I, I totally know what you're saying. And in fact, I took some um, some heart, some inspiration from uh, Mark Lawrence and uh, Scott Lynch uh, from the Lies of Lock the Moor, and in terms of going back and telling an older tale, that's 
that's partially why I felt comfortable going back and telling um, Chita's younger life through these flashbacks. Yeah, the uh, the non-chronolinear narrative has become, I think readers are a lot more comfortable with it than they used to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I, I feel like epic fantasy, to really be epic, you almost have to have multiple points of view, because that's what gives that scope. In a lot of ways, epic fantasy has to show the bad guys a little bit, too. You know, if, if you don't see that motivation of the other side, that political nature of the give and take between the, the quote-unquote good side and the bad side, I think all of those things sort of feed into what epic fantasy is. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, I, I would be curious if anybody in the comments could come up with examples of, of ones that don't. And I'm sure there are maybe a few, but in general, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, if you look, and of course, we always base all this stuff on Lord of the Rings, right? And, uh, or at least that's sort of the beginning point of what we consider epic fantasy. And, you know, it's definitely think, something that Tolkien does. You know, you do see kind of all these different sides. Although, you don't ever really sympathize with the bad guys. But, yeah. But they're definitely we never, there. And I don't know if we ever really get a point of view from the bad guys in, in those books. We get one from uh, uh, Saruman, don't we not? We, we see him. I don't know if we ever get... And, and I know it's you know third-person omniscient, but I don't, I don't know if we ever actually are in his head. Yeah, That's a good question. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, maybe not. Interesting. Uh, and, of course, my memory is tainted by the movies, right, where you do get yeah. things are <laughs> right. definitely separate. But, yeah, anyway... The other day, I don't, you probably didn't see it. You're very busy. Your book's about to launch. But I did this sort uh, of tweet spew the other day where I was talking about epic fantasy. And one of the things that I brought up is if you look at most of the really successful epic fantasy franchises, uh, and I used it in referencing Joe Abercrombie, who I think is, you know, of course, this is a rocket talk, so I can't go an episode without mentioning Joe Abercrombie. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I'm a huge, unabashed Joe fan, and I, I'm still amazed that his books, you know, he hasn't hit the New York Times bestseller list like some of his uh, colleagues. Uh, and I look at him and I say, well, what's different about those books versus, say, the Sanderson and the Weeks and the, uh, the Bretts? And uh, I've been thinking through this a lot about what makes something really a successful epic, a uh, commercial blockbuster epic fantasy. And one of the things that occurred to me was this concept of a really rich magic system. And a really rich magic system uh, that, that allows people to sort of play with it in their own minds and to sort of imagine what it would be like for themselves to participate right. in this, right? It's not, it's not an unknowable magic. It's a very concrete magic with rules uh, that allows people to sort of uh, think, think through these things. In your previous series, you had uh, some magic systems uh, and supernatural things that were a little more uh, unknowable in some mm -hmm. ways. Uh, right. Yeah, did, did you think through wanting to have like a more concrete magic system? I, I'm not sure if it's fully developed in the first book, uh, as we don't really get a, a POV from uh, a blood magic, which you have in the book. But we do have Cheta's sort of uh, the, the petals and that kind of thing. But did you think about having a more developed magic system? Yeah, I, I absolutely did. So, it, like in the Lays of Anaskaya, there was a there was a couple different things, but the primary thing was this elemental magic, um, and there was there was a, a specific uh, set of people, a, a race uh, that could that could use it, um, and they were kind of a peace loving people, except for a certain sect that was uh, almost like a terrorist organization going against their peaceful beliefs, uh, and and so the way they used it was. Like they channeled uh, elementals and used the elemental magic, you know, from these other creatures, and it, it was very like ephemeral. It was uh, very difficult to describe, um, and 
by the end of that, I was like exhausted from describing the, the magic and how it was done and trying to make it like visceral for the, for the reader. And so, um, yeah, I absolutely went in the other direction. I wanted something more concrete. Um, also, I didn't have, uh, one of the things I loved from, you know, growing up and reading, well, Tolkien, of course, but, you know, a lot of other, uh, you know, epic fantasy and high fantasy, heroic fantasy is like magic weapons. Like, I really wanted to have some of that stuff in the book. Um, and I wanted to get away from gunpowder and go you know, back to my kind of medieval roots. And, um, and the magic system itself is, is somewhat undefined. I mean, I kind of fall into the Tolkien and Martin, uh, George Martin camp of not going into it in great detail. Um, but I definitely wanted it to be more accessible to the reader. Uh, so I, yeah, I spent a fair bit of time just trying to figure out how that was going to show up and, you know, to try to keep it a little bit at arm's length, but make it, you know, visible and, and when it was there to be kind of accessible and cool, you know, uh, hit some of those buttons that I wasn't able to, to really press in the previous series. I like that word you used, ephemeral. I think that's a really good way to describe, ephemeral is what you said, right? Yeah. I think yeah. It's a good, good word to describe the, because you had two magic systems in the Laser Man of Sky. You also had this, uh, this power that just women had. Yeah. The, yeah. To so the, the, so they could write, they could talk from distances to each other, uh, by going into this state where they, they submerge themselves in ice cold water. Um, and when they did that, they, they almost astrally projected themselves, um, or, or, you know, they could talk to each other from afar, but they could also kind of meet together in, in the ether. Uh, and, and that too, same, same deal. Like that was like, it was outside the body, you know, so to speak. And so it was just, it was just difficult to, to, to make the reader feel that, you know, and again, I, uh, same, same thing. I was just kind of exhausted from writing that stuff and wanted to get a, completely away from it. That's something you don't see a lot though, where somebody uses two magic systems that are not like linked. They're, they're running separately from one another and they exist. Cause a lot of times you'll see somebody do like different applications of the same magic sort of. Yeah. Uh, but, but in lays, you definitely did this, this dual magic thing. And in, in, uh, 12 Kings, you've got, this blood magic that, that you kind of use here and there, but you've also got these sort of other supernatural things like Cheda uses these pedals that are sort of like, I don't know, like steroids on steroids <laughs> right? Uh, that she uses to, to, to power herself up. I mean, we see that right away and, and you've sort of talked about the idea about magic weapons and I think it adds a lot of richness. Yeah, the, the new one is, uh, in 12 Kings. Um, al almost all of the magic is related in some way to blood. It's, it's not very obvious. And I might be giving away spoilers if I go too deeply into it, but, um, there's lots of little hints. Um, I'm giving away some secrets on your show here that the, the, the magic that's given to even the, the, there's, there's elder gods and there's younger gods. Um, and the reader finds out eventually that the elder gods have left the world. Um, they have moved on to who knows where. Um, and humans, when they, when they die, they go to a place called the farther fields. Um, everyone suspects that that's where the, the elder gods went. And like the, the younger gods are, um, they are sort of using whatever the elder gods gave them before they left. Um, and in a way, so is humanity. Um, and that's through the blood, you know, that the, the elder gods gave them. Um, so they're all kind of linked that way, although they have different manifestations. In the Lay's trilogy, I don't recall much use of the divine. Uh, certainly, your uh, the elemental sect had a had a very religious bent to them, if I remember correctly. 
Right. But I remember you getting a lot into Divinity. It didn't seem like a real theme of the series. Right. Yeah, there, there was zero divinity, uh, divinity in, in that. And I did that consciously. Um, the, the only divinity, so to speak, was, um, the people that lived on the islands who were sort of these Muscovite Russian type of, type of culture. Uh, they believed in their ancestors, uh, giving them power, you know, so as your family grew, um, and died and ruled in the afterlife, they sort of passed down power to those who were, who were living. Um, and the, um, the other primary people, the Araman, believed in reincarnation. Uh, and so as you, as you died, your, your life force, you know, went to the, the plane of the elementals where you get magic from. Um, and th- those are kind of two views of the same thing. Um, and who's right, you know, I, who knows? You know, it's, it's just two, two different people looking at it in two different ways and, and using it, you know, for their own kind of, purposes in the end um uh, but but yeah there were no no one believed in in gods per se except for you know spirits the spirits of people who had lived and died so i i think that begs the question then of you talking about this idea of trying to make things more relatable to the reader and uh, when we talk about making something sort of commercial that's going to appeal to a wide audience it's very hard to change lots of things right it's easier to change sort of one thing and then give a yeah. lot of a lot of other things that people expect is this moving back toward gods and epic fantasy again sort of a commercial decision to to give some familiar with the unfamiliar i'll word it slightly differently like when when i was doing the lays of anaskaya i was kind of i was doing a lot of things like um, everyone t- was talking about like, oh, medieval fantasy, uh, Western, you know, European centric is, is so overdone. And I, I, tr- I tried to push really hard to get away from that in a lot of different ways. And, and these are all w- w- ways that I did it. I said it like in this Muscovite Russia type of place on these archipelagos, uh, with some Persian influenced people coming in, uh, with no gods using this, uh, you know, the, the people that had passed and, and them passing power to the, the people that still lived and, uh, not using like magical weapons, you know, a lot of things I did, uh, just to try to sort of push boundaries, you know, and, and not do, not tread the same ground. Um, and, and so, Part of it, yes, was I was I was mindful of the commercial aspects of that, you know, versus the new series. But another part of it was um, I didn't get to scratch all those itches that I that I loved when I was, you know, coming up and reading and then first starting to write because I was trying to to be quote unquote different. And so part of it was just like getting back to my roots and and just really digging the stuff that you know that I wasn't able to explore because of my own decisions, you know, during the first series. So that's uh, that's frankly been a lot of fun to to get back to that. No, I like your answer. It's definitely uh, a less cutthroat than the one I suggested. So we've kind of established the fact that your protagonist Cheda is is a pit fighter. She's a, a you know gladiator, if you will. She's also a smuggler. She's uh, this woman who's got an idea of, of vengeance. I mean, she's this really powerful individual, both physically and you know emotionally, and in, in all the ways that you can apply the word. What I find really interesting is that throughout the narrative, you don't ever really make, and this may be the wrong word, but excuses for for her being a woman. You never sort of disseminate and say like, well, you know, she can compete with this man because she's much quicker than he is, or or he, you know, or she's or she's outthinking him. Like you just sort of take it for granted that men and women in this 
in this world are, are just sort of on a, on a level playing field. Like I never felt like that you felt a need to explain why Cheda was as, was as good at, she, at, at, at the stuff that she is good at. I, you know, it, it wasn't super conscious. Um, but you know, thinking back, I, I, I'll go back to uh, something that Patrick Nielsen Hayden said way back when I went to Viable Paradise. And he was talking, he was talking about a fiction in general. And he, and he was saying fiction is about extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. Um, and, and when I think about this particular subject, um, I think about like Kvothe, you know, from the King Killer Chronicles or Locke Lamora from the Lives of Locke Lamora and that series, the Gentleman Bastards, um, uh, Yorg from the Prince of Thorns, um, you know, on and on. You, you find these people, you know, the question is, uh, are there people that are extraordinary in life? Um, yes, of course there are. And so, are, are they fair game for stories? Yes, of course they are. Um, and so many heroes are just that way and people don't really question them. You know, they, they, they just like what they do because they're, you know, they're, they're cool and they're good. And hopefully you have, you know, hopefully they're human. You know, hopefully they have some foibles and, and problems along with their extraordinary abilities or intellect or strength or whatever. Um, but, you know, just the, the fact that they are good at stuff shouldn't, really be questioned and, and, and definitely shouldn't be questioned just because they're women. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see how, how other people react to it. But so far the, you know, the, uh, the experience or the, what people have been saying about the book is they really, you know, love that aspect about, about it. They don't come out and say it like we're talking about it, but, um, but I'm glad to see that they like it and nobody is really questioning that she's, that she is like she is. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause if you look at, let's say, uh, just to use a, an example that everybody knows, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin's Brienne of Tarth, uh, in the Game of Thrones books, right. there is sort of this overt recognition that she is stunningly unique in her ability to, uh, compete against men in combat. Right. She is, she is the exception that proves the rule. But then you say you read something like Cameron Hurley, uh, and her protagonist in her first trilogy, uh, Nyx. Right. There's, there's never a moment where you're like, uh, where, where Cameron feels the need to explain or, or exceptionalize Nix's capability. Right. She's just capable. And I, I think that's what I love about Cheda is that, that she's just, she's capable. There's, there's no need to sort of explain that she's exceptional or, and, you know, she is. We get into this a lot that, uh, I, I think somebody, I, I forget who said it. It was Foz Meadows or, or Liz Burke or, or one of those folks who said something to the effect of, we're willing to buy into, you know, wizards that can move mountains, but, you know, a woman that can fight, <laughs> you know, well, we're not going that far, you know? So anyway, yeah, it, I want to give you credit for that. Yeah. And it depends on, on context as well. Like you mentioned Brienne in, in uh, the Song of Ice and Fire and, and in the context that she's in, it makes sense that she is, extraordinary women aren't typically in those roles and so she gets a lot of attention for it both good and bad um and in in 12 kings like i this wasn't super conscious i guess but now that i now that i think about it i'm um i'm somewhat glad there's another aspect of the the book that people are introduced uh early on to which is the the concept of the blade maidens who are protectors of the kings and in fact are the what are called the, the first daughters the uh, of the kings so they're nearly immortal you know they have had many different children uh, and you know they've had children of course but they it's only their direct daughters that can become the blade maidens um and they're almost akin to uh 
like like Shaolin style uh, uh, monks uh, or you know people uh, women that are just extremely dedicated and focused to martial arts. Um, and there are the silver spears as well, who are kind of the, the city guard. And those are mostly men, um, a few exceptions. But with the Blade Maidens being in the story kind of early, it kind of sets the tone, you know? So I, I think probably it's, you know, it, it just seems the norm. And, and, and people in the, in the book don't think really anything about women taking up a sword. Um, especially because it's been a, a custom in the desert, uh, for both men and women for, you know, thousands of years. I think it was Kate Elliott who often says, that uh, the history that we like to talk about of women not being in combat roles is not actually history at all. And, of course, Cameron Hurley's famous essay, We Have Always Fought, uh, yeah. speaks to that as well. Right, right. Okay, so the, the other aspect that I had to comment on with 12 Kings, uh, before we get to some little general chatter on other things, you've done something that every great epic fantasy book is must have, which is you have interior art. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is—it's not just chapter names or uh, or character headings or whatever. Like you have actual authentic interior art, right? Uh, which I think you you yourself pushed for. Yeah, pushed and paid for actually, um, and, and designed. Uh, yeah, so Adam Paquette uh, is the the fine artist who did the cover. Uh, he also did the the, the awesome um, windship cover for the Winds of Calicobo. Um, he's, he's a really great landscape guy. That's kind of what he's known for. I mean, he's, he's good in general, but you know, he's, he's known for his landscapes. Um, and so we, we had already, he'd already been chosen, um, for the cover and, um, I had worked with him, you know, on some other stuff too. So I was like, well, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to have something to differentiate, uh, each of the chapters. And because by that point I had, you know, the, the several five, you know, different points of view, um, I, I wanted to get readers sort of, into who they were about to read without having the George Martin, you know, name of the chapter equals name of the character. Um, I didn't really want to go that route. Um, so, so yeah, so we designed these, um, uh, different chapter emblems and then Daw and Glance were both, you know, on board. Um, and, uh, they, yeah, I think they turned out really cool. I'm really happy with them. This gets back to my theory about, um, a successful epic fantasy, uh, as well. You know, if you look at a lot of these, the, the better selling epic fantasies, right? They all have this cool art that makes its way into like jewelry and, uh, oh, yeah. and tattoos uh, that people get. So, so you, yeah. if nothing else, you've seeded the ground now with these, uh, with these cool images that people can kind of pick up and, <laughs> and squee over. So. Yeah. You, you have no idea how jealous I am of Peter Brett with the, uh, uh, all the, the tattoos that he helped, you know, design, um, and, and commissioned. And then, you know, you get so many people with real tattoos of, of his wards and stuff. I think that is so cool. Um, and I, I have, I just posted, a, a today on the 18th of August, uh, a, a thing about like the tattoos that are in, uh, 12 Kings. And it's not like Peter Brett's. They're, they're much more elaborate, um, than that. But, um, but it was fun to kind of incorporate that stuff too. I'm, I'm going to design those at some point because the, the text actually refers to some very specific imagery that shows up on Chada's tattoos that she gets. So that'll be fun to do. All right. So you, you heard it here, Rocket Talk listeners. Uh, Brad Bowyer issues a challenge uh, to his readers <laughs> to outdo Peter Brett readers. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and start getting those tats, people. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, uh, so that's, so 12 Kings is out. Uh, is, are you, is it 12 Kings in Sharakai in both the US and the UK or did the UK just do 12 Kings? Yeah, the UK, the UK chopped off the in Sharakai, but actually the 
internal to the book. They on the title page they kept in Shark High, so they're really just changing the the cover itself. But in the I, I don't know if in the catalog it says it's probably not listed that way in the catalog either. But uh, but yeah, they made it Twelve Kings. Okay. Yeah. Just in case anybody's confused out there, it is. Just call it Twelve Kings. You'll be in good shape. But the, <laughs> right. But in the U.S., it's <laughs> some extra words. Yeah. Uh, so that's out September first. Uh, you know, as we've kind of danced around, I I I don't know. Alpha read and beta read the book, and uh, I think it's alpha beta gamma. Yeah, exactly. I think it's tremendous. Um, I've never seen anybody have this many cover quotes from bloggers this early on in the process. So <laughs> I applaud you, Brad. For, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Your hard work. You got a. Me and Aiden from uh, a Dribble of Ink and Jared from Porno Kitch Doll. Tall blurb. Yeah. Tall blurb, the arc, which is pretty Yeah, good. yeah, and Sarah Chorn, too, yeah. from Bookworm Blues. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so all right, I, I urge everybody to go out and get that. But I can't let you go without talking a little bit about your podcast, Speculating oh, yeah. SF. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, it's uh, the writer, the podcast for writers, readers, and fans. Uh, I've been on it a couple of times. It's great fun. How are things going? It's it's going really good. Um, we we started a Patreon a while ago to to try to raise a little bit of cash. Um, uh, but in in general, we've um, we've really liked how it's been going. It continues to be a source of like inspiration for me. It keeps me reading. I'm, I, I we started it in in part, um, you know, just to do something together, me and Greg, you know, and and talk about you know the the stuff that we love. Uh, but it's had so many ancillary benefits too. Um, networking, you know, chief among them, um, being able to just die, forcing myself to diagnose, uh, the, what makes the story tick. That has been super useful too. You know, over time that, that has really helped, I think, strengthen my craft a little bit and, and, uh, reinforce some things that, you know, that I've learned, uh, and, and haven't quite sunk in yet. It takes a while for things that you know intellectually, uh, to, to, to really rock them and apply them and, and make them internal. Um, so it's been useful that way too. So if, if for people that aren't familiar, we do this among other interview type episodes. We do a triptych model in which we take a, a piece of fiction, um, say ancillary justice, and then we'll, uh, we'll read it. We'll review it in one episode. We'll interview Anne Leckie in the second episode. And then we'll talk about writing technique using the, the work as sort of inspiration. We don't always stick to that one book, but we'll kind of start there and then kind of spin off. Um, and so the, that, that rounding of subjects across three different episodes is, is really quite fun because we get to dig in quite a bit to the, to the material. It's a cool model and totally unique, I think, within sort of the, the podcast sphere, particularly because you're approaching it as both a fan yeah. and one, and a reader, I should say, and then, and then a writer second. So it's, it's, it's very unique. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> people ask about that a little bit and, and it was, um, it was done in self-defense on my part because I'm a slow reader. I, I wanted, I wanted a way to, to be able to take some fiction and have several episodes based on it so I wouldn't have to read stuff like every week. <laughs> Cause I can't do it. I, I couldn't keep up if it was that. It's a good model, man. I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest things about podcasting is early on, I committed that I would never do a show uh, with somebody I hadn't read. Right. Uh, and there's been a, f- <laughs> how long did that last? Well, every episode has had somebody that I've read. Okay. Um, okay. And so occasionally I've had somebody come on, you know, in extra. Sort of, yeah, sort of a third, a third person, or as a right. as a supporting sort of char- you know character, if you will. But you know, it's and a lot of yeah. times I end up falling back to people I'd read sort of previously. <laughs> right. Not, but I have this thing. I, I feel like when I bring somebody on to talk about or, or to help them talk through their book to the public, like 
I want to make sure it's something that I'm into. You know, I, I don't want to bring somebody on whose work I don't enjoy. Yeah, yeah. It's, hard, it's so much harder to have a conversation. Yeah, we, we do something similar. Like, we, we don't always read, you know, b- before we invite somebody on, but we look at the material and we either know about their writing from other things that they've written or we look a little bit into the, you know, the material, we read, you know, maybe a chapter or something like that just to make sure we're going to like it. Um, cause I, I, same deal. I, I don't, I don't really want to have somebody on that I'm not, you know, that I'm not into cause it, that affects my enthusiasm about the show, you know, and, um, yeah, it just makes it a, a better show overall. Unless I can, unless it's one of those people that I can talk about with them openly about why I didn't like their work, but the, yeah. the, there aren't a lot of people I can do that with. So, and yeah, and we haven't liked everything that we've read or, but we at least try to find aspects of it that, that we, that we enjoyed it, you know, to some degree, or, you know, we, we talk, you know, like, uh, Greg, Greg is not a, a big horror fan. And when, and when things get, you know, fairly, you know, bloody, intense, it's, it's not his cup of tea, you know? Um, and so like he bounced off of Rob Ziegler's seed, uh, which I loved. It was one of my favorite books, um, of the past, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, and, and so we just talked about it. He just, you know, he fessed up and we talked about why, you know, someone might bounce off a book like that. Yeah. I also love, uh, Rob's seed. I think it's, probably one of the most criminally underread books of the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. Particularly because of where it sits in that sort of eco-punk, if you will, um, genre or yeah. pseudo-genre. Yeah, it made, made a splash, but you, yeah, I, I wish it made a bigger splash. Yeah, well, and of course, you know, part of that is we we got to get another novel from Rob here pretty soon so we can, <laughs> I know. So we can dredge up the old one. <laughs> yep. Anyway, uh, on that sort of subject of breaking down a, a text, I, I you guys have got to look at Nora Jemison's new book. I've I've been looking at it, um, just you know the reviews and stuff, and seeing it's God, it's getting great reviews. People are really going gaga over it. Well, so it you know it's it's from a technique perspective, it's three POVs, mm-hmm. uh, and one of them is in second person. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, and which is just from a craft perspective is really interesting, right? Uh, and how she sort of ties them all together is really cool. And above that, it's got all this really great epic fantasy world building. And it's just beautifully written. I mean, I think it's kind of, I think it may do for fantasy what Anne Leckie did for science fiction oh, uh, wow. two years ago. So, yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask, did you, did you see a, a noticeable leap from the thousand kingdoms? Is that what it was? The yes. hundred thousand kingdoms. Yeah. So she has the three, the, the first trilogy, which is the hundred thousand kingdoms. Uh, and then the killing moon and then thing. The, right. And then the killing moon and the dream blood duology. Right. And, uh, so the first three are, I think are, you know, they're, they're, I, I hesitate to call them literary because that's sort of a, a that's can be kind of a negative connotation. Like I don't, yeah. they're not, but they are much more, um, a little more esoteric in their, the way they work, you know, they're, right. they're first person. They're, they're very, uh, they have, there's really strong romantic elements. I don't necessarily mean like romance. I mean, just sort of like this romantic feel to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where the, the dual dream, blood duologies are like really proper epic fantasy. And so, and I use proper in sort of the British use of the word proper, where it's just right. like, uh, epic fantasy as epic fantasy is sort of understood. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, so this new series, I think really merges the two. It's got like this really, oh, okay. this really cool sort of literary styling to it, but at the same time is really giving epic fantasy readers kind of like what they want. So, uh, I've, you know, which is much the same way I think Anne Leckie did that with, uh, Ancillary Justice, where it's, it's giving you sort of this, this cool writing technique, uh, stuff along with what is just a really fun space adventure. 
uh, when I think when you bring those two things together, it's potentially a, a recipe for a huge success. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, I've got my eye next on Uprooted. Oh. I'm really curious to, to read that. I'm reading The Gollum and the Genie right now because we're interviewing Helene Wecker on the show. Um, and I, I love that book. I'm really happy we, we picked it. Um, but yeah, looking forward to Uprooted too. Yeah, Uprooted is, uh, I've made no, not been shy about, uh, talking about how much I love that book. It's yeah. fantastic. And I've been really meaning to mean, really been meaning to read the Wecker book. I, I haven't gotten around to it yet. For some reason, uh, its contemporary nature, uh, has me shying away from it. Yeah. So but, it's, I mean, semi, you know, it's, you know, it's like turn of the century type thing. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I need to pick it up. So. Yeah. That, you know, the, 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 the most striking thing to me about that book is that it's the, it's the most character driven book I think maybe I've ever read. Um, and, and that's a compliment, uh, cause it's, it's so engrossing to me seeing the, the two, you know, the Gollum and the Genie, the two main characters. Uh, it's really engrossing stuff. Yeah. I think you'll, you'll find a similar thing with Uprooted. And I think all of, have you ever read anything of Naomi's? I haven't yet, no. Yeah, her original series, which which I didn't love, but it's the same very intimate characterizations. You really okay. And the, and the new book's kind of like that as well. I, you know, I've, I've become a sucker for character over the years. When I was younger, it was all about plot and world building. And <laughs> I, as I've right. gotten older, I'm like, just give me a good character and I'm, and I'm set. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway. All right, well, uh, just as I recommend people to uh, to go pick up 12 Kings of Shara, in 12 Kings in Sharakai, I uh, I also recommend they get on Speculate SF. It's uh I've nominated y'all for for the Hugo here a few times and you haven't you haven't gotten there yet, but I haven't broken through. We'll get we'll get there someday. Some someday. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But I highly recommend it. People should get out there and download it. Thanks for coming on, Brad. Uh thanks for having me on. This was really fun talk. Alright, this has been Rocket Talk. 